today's text is from Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is God's word. Good morning. My name is Mike, and uh, it's just a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, we'll be in our passage in Mark 10, and if you keep a finger in uh, John 9 as well, you could access one other passage to give us insight into today's topic about spiritual blindness. Uh, here we read in the Gospel of Mark, and, and walking through the, the book, about a healing that happens, but the, the healing is a sign. I, I don't know if anyone's ever shared this or if, if you've gathered this insight from reading the Gospels, but the, the Greek word for the word miracle is um, semeno, but it just means sign. Sometimes in the modern West, we sort of read about miracles and we think like, oh, there's sort of the natural world and then there's the supernatural world and God will break into the supernatural world and do a miracle, but the biblical conception of this is like all of this is under God's Rain, and then he does things, and we're meant to ask when we see a miracle in Scripture, what is this pointing to? You know, miracles don't happen every day. And they didn't happen every day, even in biblical times or in the ancient world. And so when something miraculous, amazing, sameno sign happens, we're meant to ask, like, what is the, what is the sign pointing to? And here we see that it's showing us something about Jesus, what he's come to do. And then we'll see through the passage that there is a, a literal physical healing, but then there's a deeper spiritual existential soul level healing going on in the passage as well. Um, when I got married in 2013, in the days after my wedding, I realized something alarming and um, striking about myself. Namely, because I had someone around at night and to sleep next to, I found out that I, I sleepwalk. And I, I think I knew something about this when I was single, but you don't have anyone else to tell you, like, you know you do crazy things at night, or, you know, here's a video of you doing crazy things at night. And so I found out that I sleepwalk. And in the, like I said, days after my wedding, I would get up, and I, I always have this, like, mission when I'm sleepwalking. Like, I have to do this thing, and so I have to clean the house, because there's people coming over, and so I'll go into the sink, grab a bottle of the Windex, and just start spraying stuff, you know? It's like, <laughs> makes sense to me, it makes sense. Or I would fold my laundry, and um, not well, but just sort of doing it, and then put on a full set of clothes, like my jeans and my jacket, and then lay back down for bed. 
And I just wake up at like 6 a.m. being like, why am I dressed like this? I'm not even matching. Um, and, my, and I have this like existential mission. It's almost as if I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but the larger why behind it is I'm blind to it. Like I have a logical and an existential blindness around it. And my wife knows this because that's what she uses to wake me up. Um, so I'll be doing something at night and she'll see that I'm sleepwalking. She'll sort of lift her head up and say, you're sleepwalking, go to bed. And I'm aware enough to go, no, I'm not. I'm cleaning this house because people are coming over. And then she'll go, who's coming over? And I'll say, you know who's coming over. And she'll say, tell me their names. And that's when I sort of the slow process of waking up from my stupor and going like, I could swear, I could swear it. People were coming over and we left a mess in the sink. And then I slowly wake up and sort of like defeated, shuffle myself back to bed and go to sleep. Uh, a logical and existential blindness, and I think some of us live with that. I know in a crowd this size, there are some of you who came into church this morning just feeling like that is a description of something that you're living with. Like you know the immediate task. You know the sense of drive and anxiety to perform. And yet the larger why and the larger mission behind it is something that you are blind to. The, the healing that God does in this person, Bartimaeus, and in the rest of the Gospels, it's a literal help physical healing, and it's a, a sign that points to spiritual blindness. So today we're going to talk about the gift of sight, the fact that this is the work that God does for this person and for us, the gift of sight, and the condition of spiritual blindness. And we'll close with how we can receive this kind of healing in our lives. So the gift of sight. In the narrative, uh, we're on the walk up to the city of Jerusalem where some very important things are about to happen in human history. Jesus' death on the cross, some of his final words, his resurrection and power. These are very important things. And of all the things that Jesus did in his life, Mark is strategically selecting them to tell us the things we need to know about Jesus as if we were the original readers piecing together our knowledge about who Jesus of Nazareth was. And so Mark is um, intentional in placing here and in, in, in noting the fact that there was this person who cried out to Jesus looking for healing. It's almost like Mark is saying, hey, some very important stuff's about to happen in this story about Jesus. Do you have eyes? Are you awake? Do you see? Literally, spiritually. Starting in verse 46, we'll read, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, this is very interesting because it's almost as if the blind man was, Bartimaeus was sitting on the roadside begging, blind, and Jesus is walking with his group up to Jerusalem, the religio-cultural center of the world at the time. And there were people ahead of Jesus and people behind Jesus and people with Jesus. And so inevitably, I think Mark is sort of painting the picture that there were people ahead of Jesus testifying to his miracles, what he said, what he did, who they suspected he might be. And then Bartimaeus with a, with a soft heart, with a sort of like hearing more and more about Jesus as people are testifying to it. You can imagine him igniting hope in his heart and saying, I wonder if this is the prophesied, centuries old prophesied Messiah in, in a pluralistic world of many religions, in a world that has seen many different people claim to be the Messiah, but then just die and nothing happens, is this the guy? Is this the one we're looking for? And so he comes to the conclusion that it's the son of David, which is a reference to the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. And so Mark is saying, do you have eyes, readers? 
because this blind guy sees a little bit more than you might give him credit. So what is spiritual sight? If blindness is an impaired ability to perceive the reality and the truth around you through sight, then spiritual sight is the ability to perceive what's going on around you and in you as it relates to God, the transcendent, and spiritual matters. And I can condense for you, this is a long biblical theme that sort of finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That's part of what he's showing us in healing a blind person, multiple blind people throughout his ministry. This is a long biblical theme, but if I can condense all that biblical theme for you, Jesus, or the scripture is telling us that if you have spiritual sight, you will see two primary things about life. The depth of sin and the beauty of grace. And they go together. The depth of human sin, depravity, the seeing fully, like in full vision, the depth of your human sin, the, the motivations that are sinful behind even good deeds, the, the, the selfishness that gets masked by um, sort of like niceness. And there is something that comes into the life of a Christian, a person who's seeking to know God and to have the kind of life that God gives, to follow in the way of Jesus, that starts with or, or sort of circles back to frequently the depth of human sin so that once you come to a place where you're saying, I think I need to go from blind to sight, not just from good to great or from kind of broken to healing myself, but that whole paradigm shift to say, I I need, to, I need my whole life changed. And when you get to that level of desperation to say, I need God to save me, then what's wonderful to you is the calling to know Jesus, him, him pursuing you, and the beauty of his grace. But the, the grace doesn't mean much if you don't start with the, the depth of human sin. It's almost like spiritual sight means you look back at your life in different moments of um, clarity and you think, you know, I wonder if the, any of these things have sort of happened to you. I wonder if the reason I'm nice to people is so that I don't have to go deeper with people and be kind. And it's, it's just, it's our propensity to say, if I'm super chill and open-minded on the exterior and kind of put a priority on being nice, I wonder if that's a way to almost even evade having emotional energy and like actually having to spend time around people who cost something. Or um, I wonder if the reason I take on social causes and advocate for things that help with justice causes might be my desire to see justice, but it might also be a deeper desire to be better than the wrong-minded people who don't advocate for them. I wonder if I take on causes so that I can be on the right side of things and not the wrong side of things and feel like that justifies me in my activity. I wonder if this is, uh, fits in with the metaphor of the sleepwalky life, that something needs to sort of ask hard questions about the real why behind our activity. I wonder if, so, if this is like a Christian one, I, uh, like a particularly religious one, I wonder if there's a part of our hearts that loves God, but that there's a part of our hearts that worships passionately and prays fervently because we think if we really put some like gumption into it, that we can bend God's arm and he'll give us the life that we want. There's a, there's a process of deeper spiritual sight where you go, even busy with like really good activity, busy being better than most people. But there's a, a glimpse that God gives you into the depth of the sin, a sin beneath the sin, the sinful motivations behind even good behavior. And when sin becomes seen, the grace of God, the calling of God, his, him pursuing you is what makes his grace heart melting. 
This is Paul's prayer for us in Ephesians 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart, writing, mean, uh, uh, note that he's writing to existing Christians, the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. There's something just very realistic about life with Jesus where you have to just come in full view of who you really are so that God's grace can flood in. Some of this um, happened in the life of Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. You know who he is. You know who he is. I don't have to say it. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He's an old Christian leader born in the 1700s, born in the year 1700. And uh, he was, he, he kind of became like a notable heroic Christian leader with a group of Czech Christians called the Moravians. Uh, Zinzendorf was a very elite individual in Europe at the time, in Northern Europe. His best friend or friends in his like childhood club became the King of Denmark and all these like very elite individuals. Uh, and he came from a prominent family, destined for success and influence and greatness. And then God intervened in his life. He became a Christian. And then the group that he led in, the Moravians, were known for their piety, like saying, of all the Christian hypocrites in the world, this group of Christian leaders and Christians is going to really emphasize like living in radical generosity and solidarity with the poor. The, the Moravians were known um, to have a mission heart, a missional heart for different cities, even selling themselves into the slave trade so they could live in solidarity and share Christ with people in the African slave trade. So Zinzendorf basically spends all of his family money, like helping people in need. And this transformation of his radical generosity came one day when he was touring Europe, as you do as a young adult from his level of um, sort of elite uh, position, going and gathering culture from all these different museums. And then one day he sees a picture uh, painted by an Italian painter. The, the painting is called Behold the Man. And it's a depiction of Jesus having been flogged, crown of thorns put on his forehead, beaten, emaciated. And he's presented, it's a painting of that stage in the, the final weeks before the, days before the cross, where Jesus is presented to the crowds who are yelling at him, crucify him, crucify him. And Pontius Pilate, stands up Jesus, flogged, and says, behold the man. And something about this painting caused a heart change in this privileged, wealthy, protected individual. And Zinzendorf later tells in his life that this is a transformative moment as he looks down towards the bottom of the painting and he sees written out a caption in Latin that says, this I have suffered for you. And it shot him to the heart and he changed the direction of his life. You see, spiritual sight is not just knowing precepts and beliefs about Jesus, but having a deeper kind of sight, knowledge, beholding the man to go deeper in sight, to see Jesus and what he's done for you. That's spiritual sight. This is some description of spiritual blindness. Simply that if you look at the story that we're reading here, um, Bartimaeus is cast out from polite society because in the ancient world, if you had a disability, blindness, deafness, that, um, that you were seen as being a victim of God's judgment. And people thought that if you were blind, then it must have been your parents that sinned 
or that you yourself sinned or that God knew that you would be a really sinful person and so he gave you blindness or you even sinned in the womb was the belief of some people in the time. It was meant to be a social, Bartimaeus would have been a social outcast as well as an, uh, a person having a hard time like holding a vocation to have a livelihood and that's why he's by the roadside begging in part. So, He's blind, but he's seen by other people to be an ungodly individual and to be spiritually blind as well. Question, how do we know if we are spiritually blind? Beyond me telling you or that the Bible seemingly telling you, how do you know that you're spiritually blind? Jesus some, gives us some insight around this in the Gospel of John when he heals another man of his blindness. Let's read um, in John 9, starting in verse 39. Jesus said to the Pharisees, For judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What, are, you, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now you claim you can see, and your guilt remains. Jesus, it might be hard to depict, but Jesus is saying there's a kind of blindness that's like, especially powerful to people who think they can see but are actually blind. And so Jesus heals this man in John 9 of his blindness and the Pharisees are upset, partially because this, this Jewish person who's healed, he starts worshiping Jesus, which is like the last thing that individual would ever do and the last thing the Pharisees would ever want. He immediately, uh, Jesus asks him, who do you think I am? And he says, I think you're the guy and starts worshiping him. And so Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, is saying the, the most particular, powerful kind of blindness an individual can have is the kind of person who thinks they see everything but actually sees nothing. He's saying to the Pharisees, there's a kind of savvy, smart, powerful person who maybe the privileges of life have made you an emotionally mature person and therefore you prefer, perform better morally than the rest of the population. There's a the kind of person who takes their moral performance and their, their ethics so seriously that they do make better choices. And so they do see many things. And yet that kind of pride creates in them a powerful kind of blindness towards the depth of their, their sin and the beauty of God's grace. C.S. Lewis some, some of this up in the abolition of man when he says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. I feel like there is a person who thinks they're a skeptic about Jesus, but actually they're a cynic about Jesus. And there's a, that's a very different logical step. That a skeptic about Jesus is asking hard questions, pressing on the reality, doing the same investigative work that this blind person would have been doing along the roadside. Who else has seen Jesus of Nazareth? Who else has a testimony? What else do you want to say? I'm thinking through my biblical knowledge. If I'm the, uh, the first century Palestinian Jewish person, thinking through all the things that seem to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's good skeptical work. The cynic sees through everything and therefore sees nothing. And I think there's a part of our hearts that are like that, maybe people that we know, and that might even be a description of you where you go, all I wanna do is shoot a, a prick every balloon to shoot through everything, to read through all this Jesus stuff in the most cynical light possible so that there's nothing to see on the other side of the window. 
C.S. Lewis and Jesus are agreeing here that the worst kind of blindness is when you think you have real sight, but in fact do not see. And it's across the spectrum, culturally, religiously, in San Francisco. I think there is a kind of very black and white, fundamentalist, Christian, and religious person who lives in San Francisco, and, and for that person, everyone, everything is black and white. There's sort of my brand of religious belief and everyone who doesn't fit into my pretty narrow circle of Christian belief and, and even cultural norms as well sometimes is, is right and everyone outside of it is wrong. It breeds in people a kind of disdain for San Francisco, a disdain for people who have serious questions or are from a different stream of Christianity or even other religions. It doesn't cause someone to be um, winsome, kind, peacemaking. It's a lot of judgment. And I think for that kind of person in San Francisco, they just sort of hide it because they know they won't keep a job in San Francisco if they're super public about that, those kinds of religious beliefs. And then they just come up in disdain. They come up when you're in traffic. They, they come up when you're at a four-way stop. And then someone's like, I'm waving you on, dude. Don't wave me on. Ugh, I hate it. I'm waving you on. And then the other person's like, no, you got to the limit line first. I'm waving you on. I'm the good person. No, I'm the good person. And then there, you just, and then one person goes and they're like, how presumptive of you to now your car's going forward. What I'm trying to say is like, I've lived in San Francisco long enough to know like, this is a San Francisco thing. I don't think this exists everywhere where we're getting, we're all fitting into this small city and yet it brings out a kind of self-righteousness and people to go like, how dare you drive poorly around me, you know? Okay, it's just me, I guess, okay. <laughs> like, it comes up in different places where we are, we're black and white, we're, we have a kind of fundamentalism. Mind you, it's not just religious people. I feel like there was a time where a lot of people were like, man, everyone's beliefs should just be rewarded. Everyone just believe whatever you want to believe. But I don't know that that's right now in our city. I think it's a lot of people who are saying, you believe what I believe or you don't believe it and, and we're right and you're wrong. We're not gonna give you a platform we're going to judge you, and we're going to take as much cultural power away from you as possible. Religious, irreligious, that's very black and white fundamentalist kind of thinking. There's a different kind of person that is very like, everyone believe what you want to believe, and I would say maybe they're not black and white, but they are gray. I heard someone in an interview sort of talking philosophy a couple of weeks ago that called this very gray religious belief authoritarian agnosticism. It was a belief that says, um, you can't know God. You can't know, say you know things about God. That's black and white thinking. Um, everyone should have a certain level of openness to say nobody can really know this stuff. And so the insistence that not just I don't know, but you can't know is a kind of authoritarian grayism to say God is gray. He must be gray. And I insist that everyone see it as gray. It's weirdly black and white now that I think of it. It's the black and white people and the gray people are living very similar lives actually these days. There's, there's very open people who insist on you being open. There's very black and white people who insist on you being black and white. And something, I think sometimes in our life, we actually vacillate and move between those two. Like you go from being a very staunch, judgmental person to a, you know, I should be much more open-minded kind of person. And you go back and forth in different situations in life. I think something has to exit us from this spectrum. I think the Christian worldview, the gospel of Jesus, however you say it, following in the way of Jesus, I think it moves us off of gray scale into technicolor. I think there's something about belief in Jesus, the depth of our sin and the beauty of God's grace that causes us to have all the virtues of black and white people, namely that there are truths that we hold on to. The, the Bartimaeus is on the roadside 
not saying, hey, anyone, God out there, the universe, can I get some help? He's saying, I have located a kind of truth and a resource in the person of Jesus that can change me. And he, so it's very black and white. And he's calling it out and saying, have mercy on me. The word mercy in the New Testament is, um, it's not just compassion. It's not just sympathy. It, it, it connotes and sort of assumes tangible help. And this guy's saying, I need, I need you, Jesus, son of David. And if that's you, I'm pleading with you, heal me. And then, of course, the salvation, um, the word healing in the, in the text is the word sozo, it's salvation, literally. So Jesus says, um, your faith has healed you. This man receives physical healing. And it's right that the translators use that word to say, your faith has healed you. But the double meaning there is to say, there's a salvation coming to your life because you've cried out to the right Savior. That's very black and white. And yet, the Christian worldview, it's technicolor because the way that you come into relationship with God is through desperation and the realization that your sin probably runs a lot deeper than you're willing to admit and that your blindness hides you from your blindness. And so black and white people are saying, you gotta be about truth. And gray people are saying, people use that truth to beat people up and to be self-righteous and abuse people. And so they're looking for peacemaking and love and openness. And the life that we have in Jesus gives us exactly that. Because what got you into the kingdom of God? Not your moral performance, not being on the right side of history, not taking on the right social causes and using the right language that's acceptable. It's through a desperation and a plea to God. And so that kind of grace humbles us it changes us so that our neighbors in San Francisco, the people who disagree with us fervently about all sorts of different issues, can be more moral, higher performing, have more internal hope than we ever have because, by have, because we're not into the kingdom because of our performance. And so we hold tightly to the things that do matter that are very black and white. And yet those truths that we hold on to can create in us a kind of humility and peacemaking that comes through Jesus. And that's why following Jesus is, is in full color. It's not either one. It's not gray and it's not black and white. It's something different. Some of this reminds me of the 1939 movie, The Wizard of Oz. Because uh, it was one of the first movies that was in Technicolor. And the movie transitions from the scenes that are in Kansas. In the beginning of, you know, Dorothy's in Kansas and it's sort of dusty. I don't know if you've ever been to Kansas. <laughs> it's all in black and white. It's sort of just drab. And then the house that she's in is taken up into a tornado, and then the house lands, and Dorothy falls onto the bed, and she realizes she's still alive. The house is still intact, and she sort of walks her way over to the doorway, grabs the knob, opens the door, and what's outside is in Technicolor. The camera pans in and just starts to explore around the beauty of the colored world around. And then Dorothy backs up out of frame and then enters back in and she herself is in full color. Beautiful, blue, heavenly dress, bright hair. Now she's living her life in full color. If you find yourself in sort of that balance between gray and black and white, see the best parts of following Jesus. Mine out of our efforts to be truthful and open, to be open-handed Christians that hold on to Jesus as Savior. And thirdly, here's, 
here's how we can have that in our life. How do we find healing in Jesus? Verse 52, Jesus wraps up this interaction with Bartimaeus by saying, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the way. Our process of knowing Jesus is the same as the process of this man being saved. Our process of finding new sight, new perception. Religious people, Christians here this morning, people who don't know where they exactly stand with Jesus and they're not sure if God is good or worthy or able to be trusted. The process of us finding new sight, new perspective, is the same as this man. The process was that he cried out for mercy. He threw off his cloak. He heard heard Jesus treating him personally, and then he had faith. Let's walk through it quickly. He cried out. He cried out from a place of brokenness. And if we spend most of our lives making excuses, making justifications, or in my sleepwalk metaphor, sort of just busy doing and not asking the hard questions about why we lack this, why I insist on not changing, why I have these problems in my life, or why don't I care about whether Jesus is the son of David. If we just keep being busy without asking the questions, then you might never be disrupted enough to realize that there's a blindness that you're living with. Worse yet, worse yet, if we live with some aspect of the truth such as Christians, such that we think we see all truth and therefore don't have to be open to God bringing healing into our lives and new sight into our lives, then we'll never cry out and there will never be that gift of new perception and healing from God. So we have to start by crying out. Secondly, we have to throw off our cloak. Um, the throwing off of the cloak is in the time and in the narrative meant to symbolize the throwing off of an identity. If you remember the story of the prodigal son, this son is like from a wealthy family and then he asks for his inheritance. He goes away and spends it uh, licentiously. He spends all his money. He falls into poverty and then he comes back walking across the dirt road back to his father to ask for a place to live again. And as he turns the corner and he's visible, it says that the father saw him a long way off and ran and he hugged him and he kissed him and he doted on him but then what it says he did was that the father put his robe around his son. Like, think about that act of that. I don't want to trivialize it, but just like think about what that feels like to be broken, but then to have the robe wrapped around you. But not just a robe, but like the father's robe. And in the same, a similar way, but in the opposite. Think about wearing the broken, dirty, greasy, dusty rags of a blind beggar outcast society, outcast from society, and then he throws it off because the people were notifying him, either with a bad attitude or with a bad or good attitude. Like, I don't know how to read it, but they were saying like, okay, shush, stop yelling. Uh, get up, he's calling you. Like, hurry up. And so he throws it off and he goes to Jesus. And then the next step here, Jesus looks to him personally and asks him a profound question. What do you want me to do for you? Like the Jesus asking you personally. And I wonder if you're in a place this morning where like before you receive the sight, you might need to start by praying very honest prayers and saying, okay, God, here you go. Here's what I'm upset about. Here's what I'm skeptical about. And being directly honest in prayer with Jesus, like even this morning and seeing that God can handle those kinds of prayers and that honesty. 
see God's posture to you as, what do you want? Like, I'm calling you. What do you need from me? So Jesus treats him personally. It's not abstract teaching. It's not abstract knowledge. Jesus' posture is not, here's what you need to know. It's, what do you need? And then he has faith. How we think about faith is very important for us to really respond to Jesus. He says in the passage, your faith has healed you. And that's kind of a phrase that, that needs to be deconstructed to our part and understood. Um, what he doesn't mean is whatever you believe, believe it hard, and then you'll sort of be rewarded in the spiritual life. When, he said, when Jesus says your faith has healed you, he's not saying it matters less what you believe in as long as you believe it. It, it, it's not the biblical conception of faith, and it wouldn't make sense because Jesus is, he's forcing himself on the city of Jerusalem to his own death. He knows that it's going to happen. He's, he's uh, told to people like multiple different times. People don't believe him. And so Jesus is like forcing himself on the religious center of the world here, knowing he's going to die. Would it make sense that before he does that, that he says, you know, it doesn't really matter necessarily what you believe in, just believe it. No, and, and what's rewarded here is that there's a very particular thing that the blind man calls out. I don't think that um, the biblical conception of faith is, um, nor is it a blind leap of faith. I don't know where we got this conception of like Christianity is rewarding a blind leap of faith. I think it's somewhere from the like European post-enlightenment. I'll blame Europe. I don't know, it's an easy target. Just like, I blame Europe for it. But like, where did we get this conception that what, what the Christian life asks for is that you shut your brain off and then you just sort of say, I'm gonna become a religious person and just start sort of just believing things that I'm told. This blind man did some investigating. He's in a place where he's learning. He's, he's personally needing help and he knows he needs a crutch, Delina. He knows he needs help. But he very particularly, he's very guided and specific, references an Old Testament passage. And, and Mark, by the way, is putting together a very skillfully crafted narrative so that you can, as the reader, understand the unfolding reality of who Jesus is, what he's, who, who he is and what he's come to do for you. And so it betrays Mark's narrative and the biblical exception of faith to say, your faith, your blind ascension to my to this religion is what healed him. And it's not an internal sort of just mustering up righteousness. It's a little bit like this, and I'm sorry if I'm meandering here. It's as if you found yourself falling down a mountain. And um, on the side of the mountain, as you're falling to your death, there are other things that you could grab onto. You could grab onto a boulder, but you're falling so fast that grabbing onto a boulder to save you would probably just like smash you and you would die anyway. Or there's other things on the side of the mountain like, uh, like that are brown and gray and sort of brambly. And you could try to grab onto some of those dead branches. And yet, if you grabbed onto them, no matter how hard you grasped them, they would break and you would fall to your death as well. If you're in this position, the thing that you have to do is search for something that is alive, that's green, a plant that's coming out of the side of this, a branch, a tree, or what have you, that can bear the weight of your problem, and save you. My point in this, and I'm sort of adapting this from, um, from um, Timothy Keller, he explains this same metaphor in preaching on John 9, that it's not so much a conception of how hard you grab onto something, but what you choose to grab onto. 
that you could grab on very hard to something that just cannot save you. And yet when something comes along that can bear the weight of your problem, your brokenness, your sin, then grab onto it with as much as you can. But it's not so much how hard or that you perfectly grab onto it, but that that object of your faith can bear that weight. That's what Jesus means in part when he says, your faith has healed you. It's a phrase that says, like the end of Indiana Jones, you've chosen wisely. Your life is saved. So what's the process? The process of us having new perception and sight is to cry out, throw off your cloak, the old identity, to hear him treating you personally and to have faith in Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, and follow him. Not everyone in the stories of Jesus' healing has a name. Uh, like the rich man and Lazarus. It's just a rich man, doesn't have a name. So other people that are healed that are just a blind man gets healed. This story tells us the man's name is Bartimaeus and then actually goes on to explain the translation of his name. Bar in Hebrew means son of Timaeus. It's, it's striking that that's the case and the commentators agree that Mark's telling us not just an account of a person who is healed, but an origin story of a person who got up from that healing and followed in the way of Jesus. He literally followed in the way of Jesus. Mark has a double meaning here to say, Bartimaeus became a leader in the church, a person who has prominence and leadership and is known to have eyewitness accounts to the life of Jesus and to this healing. Mark is begging throughout his gospel to say, please go find Bartimaeus and talk to him. This is an origin story of a person who previous to this event would have been alone, socially outcast, feeling judged by God, and now is following in the way of Jesus. This is the origin story to a life. And I'm, I'm thinking here of John chapter, 1 John chapter 3, where it says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And what we, are be, what we will be has not yet been made known. And I pray that God gives you a kind of sight, even this morning in worship and prayer, that when he calls you, treats you personally, gives you new sight and calls you to follow him, that what you will be has not yet been made known. First John 3 says, but we know we will be like him. And you don't know the kind of person that God will make you into. You don't know the life that you will have of following Jesus. That part takes trust, it takes faith. But the process is still the same of healing. And my prayer for us is that we start that process by doing the same thing that our Zinzendorf friend did. Behold the man. See what he's done on the cross. See what he's done for you. These sufferings I've done for you. Start there. Cry out for sight and let God bring healing and new perception into your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, um, I pray, I pray that we would have the humility in our finitude and in our fault to not have the blindness where we think we see everything. I pray that you would give us a humility, not that beats us down, but encourages us to celebrate and savor your grace. So reveal to us the depth of our sin, but all the more show us, fill our hearts with the emotions that are right to, the, to um, experience the depths of your grace and power. I pray that we would not be blind, but that we would see this morning it's in your name we pray, amen.